that there'd be plenty of newspapers with plenty of different people controlling them, so that there's a variety of viewpoints, but there's a choice for the public. Uh, no, no, not, 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 not a crime. And you shouldn't be trying to turn this into a subsequent media circus. Good morning, sir. How are you? Hello, and welcome to Opheads, the podcast that deconstructs the ways in which we as individuals accept, approach, consume, and process news media, and exploring where our opinions, perspectives, actually come from. I'm Rachel Morrow, and I'm a filmmaker, writer, and producer that's currently living in Tasmania, but I used to be living in New York. And I'm, I'm Zeb Rogerson, living in Hobart. Um, I, my, name's, my name's Coward Huntington. I'm talking to you from uh, not-so-sunny Berlin in my little cupboard, and I'm an author and illustrator and stuff like that. Nice, nice. But I'm trapped in this fucking cover. I can't. There's no air in here. Already, there's no air in here. But there's less and less air every day. It worries me a lot. It's very stressful. You should just put a hole in the wall. Move to Hobart. I could move to Hobart, but I feel like I feel like still. Whenever you talk to me about Hobart, I spent so long telling people like I was like, oh, how's Zeb? He's he's moved to the woods. He's moved to the (laughs) middle of the woods. And when I picture, I, even though I've been to Hobart, I know it's a perfectly normal place. In my head, when I picture it, it's still just a big jungle. <laughs> it's like a big... Yeah, we live in a log cabin unit out in uh, West Hobart. <laughs> <laughs> Full bush. Surrounded by all of the Tasmanian devils. Sending sending letters out to previous school principals. <laughs> yeah, Sue <laughs> I'm coming for yeah, you. Oh. Sue <laughs> <laughs> We're going to bleep that out. Sorry, sorry Sue so, yeah, this uh, first section that we're doing is just going to be us, like, discussing what we kind of already know about, like, uh, our particular topic, and then we'll go away, we'll do our kind of week of research and our allocated sort of uh, sections, and then we'll come back and discuss what we've learned. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think it's been, like, I think it's been, now it's been probably a year and a half since I went back to Australia. Um, and I usually try to go every year, but the topic that we're talking about, like, weirdly enough, I was, I was like back in town. Uh, I've been in Berlin for like three years. So I was back, I was back for the bushfires um, a year at the start half, of the year. Yeah, oh, well. It's was it? nearly no, it the end of the year. No, to it wasn't this even year. a year ago, actually. Yeah, it wasn't. Even that was like oh, that was right. that was January. Yeah, actually. Well, <laughs> it feels like a year and a half. It feels like a year and a half since I've been home. <laughs> I don't want to go. I think what I what it, it will be a year and a half by the time I get back. But yeah, so it, like I was back in town for the bushfires, kind of literally for the duration of them. I was sort of around. Um, but obviously, Rachel, you were in New York at the time. Yeah, yeah, I was. I didn't come back last year, so I was kind of this year. Oh yeah, no. Well, the, the bushfires started in December, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so you I, missed the bushfires. Yeah. Well, I didn't come back till April this year. But yeah, so yeah, I was so just kind of sort of just after, yeah. Yeah, I was hearing about all of the bushfires from New York and just freaking out constantly, mm-hmm. checking in on my family because, like, you know, they've got the farm and stuff. And I was like, oh my god, <laughs> please stay safe. It was... Oh yeah, of course. Did it did it hit the the patch? No, no. So my parents don't live in the patch anymore. They live in Belan, which is like near Ballarat. But um, there yeah, wasn't right. like there were fires around that area, and I was always checking in. There was one I know that was like quite close, and I remember my parents mm. being like they were just waiting for the wind to change, which it did, thank God. But um, yeah, yeah nothing Jesus too, Christ. nothing too much like what it was like in you know New South Wales. Yeah, for sure. 
But I, I don't know, Zeb, if there was like much of a, was there much of a warning beforehand? Because when I arrived, it was like already happening. But was there much of like, oh, there's something going to happen, you know, soon? Well, I think, I, I don't know. I wasn't, I like, I wasn't tracking it before they started at all. I, you know, I think there's, mm. you know, like there's a, there's an assumption that around that time of year, they're going to start. But I remember yeah, my yeah. first day was the first day where I kind of realized how intense it was. I guess, like personally, was I was catching a I was I was on my on my way to work, and there was a huge smoke cloud across Melbourne, which was still yeah. hours and hours away from the fire. Yeah. But then I thought that it must have been a factory fire or something huge, like you know, yeah, a yeah, yeah. Of times. But then, yeah, no, it was re- it was it was coming down from uh, New South Wales. Yeah, right. It was it was really fucking eerie. Like I remember getting back in like uh, because you know being in Germany it was fucking winter, and I usually am so excited to get. I usually try and skip the winter, get out of the winter. Mm. And I got into Melbourne. I was like, it's just grey, and and not just like grey, like it's an overcast day. It was eerily kind of yellow and creepy and weird. Yeah, it makes and the sun look kind of funny and yeah. Mm. Yeah, and every day it's like things like that really shocked me at the time were just like how. Uh, the weather is such a big factor to a natural disaster like this, and it's something like normally when, like, uh, you know, in, in the in the context, like, I don't know, it's just weird to hear like the updates for the day. Normally, when there's a natural disaster, or like, oh, this is what's happened here, so who's dead? There, it was like we're hoping the wind's going to change, and there was something that I found really terrifying about that because it's like, oh man, like this is completely out of our control. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah it's terrifying. I knew like. Like, those bushfires weren't, like, even though I wasn't here to experience them, it just brought back, like, so many memories of when, like, the Black Saturday bushfires, which did hit the patch when I was still living there in the Dandenongs. And it was crazy. Like, I remember we had, like, we were constantly on, like, evacuation like watch basically like me and my sisters had to have like a bag packed and ready to go Mm. as soon as like the fires got too close and I remember there was this one time where like from our kitchen window you could see the fire like on the other side of the ridge because the patch is like a little bit of a valley so you could see the flames on the other side of the ridge and like all of the cars and all of our neighbors were like leaving and my parents Mm. decided no no we're not gonna leave we're gonna yeah right really okay which was ridiculous and they were just like spraying their house with water and everything and I remember me and my sisters like sitting in the land room with our bags ready and we're just like why are we not leaving like this is ridiculous it that's was, yeah. mad but then that's eventually like, we like... did evacuate and we went to my okay. grandma's house which was nice but your your place was unharmed wasn't it yeah 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 okay were they just not leaving because they were like oh we'll be fine or was it because like no we yeah. got to pre- prepare things well it was more kind of like I don't know my mum is someone who like always prepares for the worst. So she really wanted to leave, but dad was kind of like, we don't need to leave yet. Like it's not that bad yet for us to have to leave. Like they haven't told us yeah, that there right, isn't right. a way out. So it was more just, they were kind of like wetting the house and everything to make sure embers didn't come over and like light anything yeah, on fire. Yeah. Um, yeah. If it got to the point where like it had kind of encircled the patch, then yeah, we would have left for sure. But it never got to that point that bad. Yeah. How how old were you then? That was like two thousand and eight or two thousand nine. Oh yeah, two thousand eight. Yeah, I think I was fourteen or thirteen. Thirteen. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, it's crazy because I I don't remember though. I remember hearing about it, but I don't remember because it, it went for a few days, and I remember hearing about it and being like, "Oh, that sucks," but like 
not really having much of like a like like not having much of a personal connection to it so it's just like oh that's a terrible thing that happened but it might as well have happened in a different country but it's so crazy mm. to like think that like you know compared yeah. to the second one where i think just as just to watch it go for so long and every day there'd be something horrible on the news and like you know a bunch of koalas are dead this week and like mm. the fires just getting be i remember seeing it from a fucking plane when I was flying somewhere internally, I saw I have photos on my phone. Like you could see it just as you were flying for hours and hours. You could just see, I don't know. It looked like a little like a, a gas burner or something. Oh like my that, god, you know, that's just crazy! Just streaking along the the countryside, and we drove up to like because my, my since we we're like when I got back, my parents were like oh we're gonna go to Queensland. We're just gonna drive through the routes where there isn't any fire, and I remember stopping through Dubbo, and we were staying in this like. I don't know, some central hotel in, in Dubbo and we we're out in the balcony. And like when we rolled in, it was just like, I don't know, just this cloud. The whole town was just this cloud of smoke. Like you get out the car and it was kind of like if you were in Scotland in the moors and it was mist except it was just smoke. And the, and the fires were like uh, like a long way away. Like I, I want to say hundreds of kilometers, but maybe I'm wrong. But I, I think it was hundreds of kilometers away and there was that much smoke. Like it's just, oh my God. Um, but I think the reason, like, so, the, uh, from my memory of the bushfires, there was this sort of, after it was sort of started to, like, you know, once everyone got past that national unity of, like, oh, shit, everything's fucked up, there started to be kind of, like, there was sort of this ongoing dialogue of, like, whose fault is it? And obviously a lot went on to Scott Morrison because he had it really terribly and was overseas and came back and was sort of being kind of robotic. But then there was a lot of discussion about, like, um, is it because of global warming? Is it because, like, no one listened to, um, you know, the report that was made after Black Saturday, there was a report about how we've got to take better, you know, better be better prepared. And then on the other side, on the right, there was a whole bunch of stuff about, like, Oh, you know, it's because of the, the the liberal greenies won't let us fucking backburn and uh, low grazing cattle. They're not allowed to graze anymore, and that's like. And also, I think there was something. Maybe I'm wrong about like. Oh, there's a couple of young boys and they're arsonists or something. Yeah, right. I don't remember. Yeah, that. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I didn't really. I guess I wasn't really paying attention being in New York about like kind of the reasons as to why it happened. I just assumed, yep, global warming and Scott Morrison's bad. <laughs> like that's all I kind of remember. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. that I think that the the criticism of Scott Morrison was mostly more about his response rather than his preparedness. I th- I feel like I don't know, at least that's the narrative that I was catching at the time. Yeah, right. I think it was really weird to come back uh to be like fully in it and then to fly back to Europe and then hear the way people talk about it because it kind of like it made me sort of realize like i talk about you know and this is kind of what this early the, the this is what this first part of the show is is about is exactly the situation i was in with the bushfires where everyone's in a in a bar or whatever and you have a few beers and um you start talking about something that maybe you don't really know much about and i had a friend here who was going like Actually, I wasn't there at the time, but I heard this, and it was like, oh, yeah, actually, you know, so the the Australian bushfires, it was actually because of the left wing wouldn't let them cut down forests, so that's why the fires happened. And it's a kind of thing that's like, not that I think I'd ever be on that side of the issue, but it's kind of like, ah, he just heard that, he just absorbed that on social media, um, and it made its way to Europe, and that's kind of the way the dialogue kind of, like, was what it sort of turned into. 
And I think yeah. that's kind of and the... like whoever you hear first, that's just what becomes the truth. Exactly. And I think like it's it made me realize, you know, like I sit around all the time in bars and I talk about things and natural disasters happened in other countries that really like maybe I've read the headlines, maybe I've heard sort of the vibe and or, or and I just sort of go with whatever my instincts tell me you know like is the truth behind it but yeah it sort of it was weird to hear something that i kind of felt like a bit personally attached to talked about in in that way from the outside you know right yeah new york was different i guess like everyone in new york was just kind of seeing it and just thinking oh my god this is horrible but no one really kind of got into the reasons behind it everyone was just like oh it's australia like of course it's on fire it's so hot there yeah 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 like well that's a bit silly but yeah no that was literally it though like every american that i would speak to even like my closest friends would just be like well yeah doesn't this happen every year i'm like well no have you seen no, it in no, the media <laughs> no. every year like has it been this bad to reach america like there's also it's like this common like uh you know like f- this this idea which i get if you're not australian it's not going to be that apparent to you but like how big Australia is and how much of it is just sort of farmland and forest land. And so, like, uh, how grand, like, like, you know, I don't know, like, you'd see these people would be much more surprised when I'd be like, yeah, it's the size of, like, three, four times your whole country is just on fire. But a lot of the time in Europe, especially, people go, oh, my God, like, what the hell? Like, you know, this is this is not just a common occurrence. This is mad. Like, this is really horrible. Like, this is my understanding is I we were listening to a lot of like when we were in the car and we were kind of more you know driving through country towns or whatever because we drove up to Queensland and back uh and it was like we were hearing a lot of interviews a lot of ABC stuff and I remember there was and I'm gonna get this wrong but this is uh you know something that can be researched but there was a fire like um okay let me let me try and collect <laughs> okay there was a there was a there was like a commission after Black Saturday that kind of like determined like how this could be avoided that like outlined literally at the beginning of 2020, it's going to be a really hot year. So that's one of the years it's going to be a big focus. And um, here are some things you can do something about like the way that we were uh, storing like petrol or gas or something. And then we can do this and we can do that. We have to do this and that, which was like, uh, you know, commissioned by the government, I think, or something, and then largely ignored. So there was a sort of pre-warning literally for like the time and place of like, this is what you got to do. And I think that the government took in some points, but not the most important ones related to like fuel collection or uh, not collection, like storage. Right. Um, Okay. So the lefties point is the government mismanaged was not as prepared as it should be. And it's global warming. And on the right, a lot of what I was hearing was kind of one or two of these points. Firstly, the big one is the greenies won't let us backburn. So, like, backburning is in, like, you know, starting a small fire in, like, an area of grassland or woodland, like, that's controlled so that we have more of, like, a... um, you know, so that, like, when a fire begins, it doesn't spread as easily, like, which yeah, Indigenous so, people used to do for yeah, thousands of years. It's and, to yeah. get rid of, um, like, backburning. Like, my parents do it on their property. It's just to get rid of the um, shrubbery and, like, the foliage that's on the ground because that's what actually starts the fires and, like, keeps them spreading. But if you get rid of them so there's not that much the next season, it doesn't yeah, spread yeah. as quickly. 
Which, which is like, a, I'm as far as I can tell, I'm pretty sure that indigenous people have been doing that for like a what, forty thousand years yeah. or whatever, and it's a it's yeah. important thing to do. But their their point was like, oh, the greenies uh, won't let us do that anymore because of global warming or you know deforestation or whatever, yeah. um, and that's why the fires started. And then there was another point that it, oh, it's all arsonists. There was definitely a thing about arsonists. Oh, it's like yeah, because I know there that, were, a good I, chunk of the Black Saturday fires were the doing of of arson. There was a lightning oh, strike though. Like lightning caused some of the Black Saturday as well. Yeah. Well, they, I know. I remember they kept focusing on these two. They got this footage of these two little punk country kids who were maybe like ten years old. Who looked like little BMX kids, and they and them with like a little cigarette. <laughs> and <they're> like, <laughs> we watched, we watched them just throw the cigarette on the ground and start a fire. Which I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure there was some arson. I mean, I'm sure there is some arson, and I'm sure oh, that's yeah. the causation of lots of wildfires. But I think I don't think it. it like I don't think that it, it's entirely responsible. That's my obviously. That's just my opinion. But mm. I, I'd like to. I'd like to see kind of what evidence there is or whether it's just a general chatter on the right. The other the, the other thing that occurs to me, and again, this is really just getting into the realm of like what I think, but I talked to some of my friends who are in like forestry and their argument against it was um, that firstly, I mean, obviously the greenies don't have that much of a sway over the largely center left, like Victorian government and the, and the sort of center right government of Australia. Like there's not, something that the Greenies don't have that much power about whether we can't backburn. It's not in the Greenies. Especially in regional areas, like, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the other point was that, uh, so, like, there's a difference, there was a difference between backburning and some other kind of burning. Like, there's there's backburning and there's another kind of burning. Controlled burn-offs? Like, yes, controlled burn-offs and backburning, I always thought were the same thing. There's something that I'm sure we'll figure out in the research that I remember at the time being very passionate about, but I've already forgotten what it is. <laughs> but it's something about like, oh, they're saying it's backburning, but what they're talking about is this kind of burning. Backburning's different, and and that's why like a lot of people are getting it wrong. And that this is what was banned, and this is why. And then also the the main thing that I got from my friends in forestry was like, a big issue is now a lot of the towns are uh, expanding into each other. And so there's a lot more houses that can be destroyed when there is a fire in areas that are traditionally fire prone, you know, and, and that's another factor to it. But yeah, so these are all the kind of things that are floating around um, that we can, you know, make point of researching. Yeah, yep, for sure. Yeah, well, I'm happy to really go into the kind of, I guess for lack of a better word, the leftist view of the government and how it was kind of the responsibility on them to you know, be prepared, and if they mishandled it, I'd like to research a bit of that as well. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, I think I yeah, I'm keen to look into the uh, to the kind of anti-greeny narrative that was spun by the media and see if there's any truth to any of it. And I'm, um, I think I'll, I'm happy to just sort of like give a general overview of like this fire maybe just fire response culture in australia in general and kind of like how that's changed and because i feel like uh, to zoom out and to look at it uh, at the at the macro not the micro about like yeah i don't know like how how australia traditionally handles uh fires is kind of important too to know yeah yeah, yeah for absolutely. sure Definitely. But, like, yeah, regardless, I mean, no matter, you know, I think, like, 
It's very natural to sort of assign blame, um, and sometimes it's absolutely valid. But I think, yeah, people in a, in a situation where there's an emergency often do. Yeah, no, I think so too. Like, I feel like a lot of these situations, especially in natural disasters, a lot of the time it's not necessarily a blame game, but everyone yeah, wants yeah. to be able to do that so that it makes it easier for everyone to kind of understand the tragedy and deal with the tragedy. But I guess, like, the point of this episode is for us to kind of figure out if there was actually someone to blame or if there was something specific to blame or if it was actually just, you know... Like a collection of lots of... Yeah, yeah, just get a clearer picture of, like, what happened. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. I guess that, yeah, we'll uh, go off and do our research for the next week. Do our research. And, um, yeah, come back and (laughs) hopefully know heaps more about what happened. Yeah, I hope so, yeah. Yeah, we're also Berlin's sliding into a quarantine, so I'll probably have lots of time to research because we <laughs> our um our numbers are zooming up, and the the you know government's doing absolutely nothing, or the state uh, government. Geez. Well, we've uh, well, I just got a new job, kind of. We'll see. <laughs> Over the week, Coward read Fire Country by Victor Stephenson. What you need to know about the Australian bushfires from The Verge and watched Australian Stories Indigenous Fire Management Program. Zeb read a bunch of stupidity on Twitter, Sky News' interview with Barnaby Joyce, The Guardian's article about Twitter, bots throughout the fire season. Sorry, I can't look. <laughs> Did a little bit of a skip there, but that's all good. And Rachel read how Rupert Murdoch is influencing Australia's bushfire debate by the New York Times. Graham Redfern's article in The Guardian about Australia's bushfire conditions and climate change. And on ABC, an article about arson claims. All sources for the episode can be found at cowdspace.com slash opheads. Um, and the other thing, the other thing I realized almost immediately into doing the research was last week I was banging on about uh, petrol. Like, you know, they're storing too uh, yeah, much fuel, petrol. Fuel is not the same as petrol yeah yeah i think i don't know is that is that i think that that's something that's not even like i don't think you need to be like a fire management expert to know that i think i just heard the radio show i listened to they were talking about fuels going yeah petrol they kept too much (laughs) i know because when you were talking i don't know yeah because when i read fuel i'm like yeah of course like forest fuel you know but when you talk about petrol i was like Oh, I guess he's talking about tractors and you know, yeah, like yeah. cars. I was literally, I thought, I thought it was like that. I, I, in my mind, when I was listening to this podcast, I remember listening to it on the on the drive up back from Queensland, going, "Yeah," and I thought they were talking about like all these farmers, uh, like no, the government is like storing illegal petrol in big canisters <laughs> in the bush or something. Like, I don't know what the fuck. Was. That's ridiculous. Uh, well, is it, man? Uh, I don't know. It is, is a it? little well. No, it's it is ridiculous actually to ridiculous. me, but I'm sure maybe yeah, to other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. But did you guys find like I? I definitely think that like uh, I've I've kind of I think Corona really and not being in Australia really put the bushfires a lot out of my mind because I don't know like reliving well kind of like reliving it through watching all the videos and and remembering it's so it's so like uh, I don't know it's so it's so weird to think that it wasn't that long ago and. 
I've forgotten so much. Like, immediately, like, I knew so much that I've already forgotten about it. Yeah, no, I agree. Like, I think it was more kind of, like, re-seeing the images that brought it all back. And I was like, fuck, that's crazy. Like, it was so intense. And then it just makes me think, like, we're in almost November. And these started in, like, September, November last year. Like, we're we're in for a a whole other situation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't think that I was... uh... I don't. Th- I feel like I haven't learned really anything <laughs> in the, in the uh, <laughs> process of the research yeah, right, that I did. Okay. It was all just a bunch of nonsense. Mm, yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. I think it's kind of tricky because, like, I don't. You know, like, it's obviously like when we when we touch on like the rights perspective or more the, even the conspiracy perspective. I think it's almost like it's it, I, like I don't want to entertain these ideas. Even though that maybe that would be objectively like the most fair thing to do is be like entertain all ideas, but I think to me it's almost more like, no, nah, this is fucking like uh, right wing myth busting. You no, know? like yeah. did it feel like that? Uh, yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, see, I, I think I'll explain more when it's kind of uh, my turn. But I, I think uh, I found that um, you kind of it, it doesn't take long before you get to the heavy conspiracy side of it. I don't think like the kind of right wing. Uh, the more like mainstream right wing uh, take on it is pretty minimal and kind of fueled by conspiracy theories as well. Yeah. Okay. Right. Mm. Yeah. I think. I think. I. I was just mostly shocked by like. Uh, like when I would like you know I go through I was going through a lot of articles related that I remember at the time and and just watching all this footage and it was like rolling through these awful memories that that really are so apocalyptic and like i think because it's something natural and it is fire that you know like it's just it was just such a like it was such a catastrophic thing and really like uh day to day it felt like that you know being in the cities which is really like not even close to experiencing what people in the country did but like i i really like uh like was really shocked to see just quite remember like how bad it was. I really wonder if it's just all been absorbed by Corona or whether this is just the sort of the way our memory, what our memory does to big, um, you know, like a, a catastrophic events. Yeah. Well, I think for sure, I think it's definitely been kind of overshadowed by the coronavirus. but once the summer hits and like the fire season comes back again, I feel like it's going to be brought yeah. back to everyone's minds and it's going to be like relived obviously. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. For yeah. now, I think yeah, coronavirus has kind of just swooped in and been like, not today. You can't remember what happened no, yesterday. No, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, uh, I kind of like what I'm uh, the, like. I figure the way I'm I'm sort of talking about the general history of bushfires that led up to 2020, which is obviously a a lot of time, uh, like you know, hundreds of thousands of years. So I'm gonna try and be brief, and obviously, I can't really like give the whole history of bushfires like uh um i can't give it like a i can't give it the the rundown it needs after a week of research and with the time we have now but um i'm going to kind of focus on like how bushfires were pre and post uh settlement and then kind of like the perfect storm of climate change meeting like years of neglect uh that led up to like the bushfires in 2020 and then and then a brief rundown of 2020 right yep sounds good sounds good yeah uh, so the the thing like cuz i've i've like read a lot about cultural burning and indigenous burning which i didn't know anything about but it is really fascinating but in, like incredibly complex and i think the thing that most struck me from like uh the source material that i like got into was like 
you know when you like drive around Australia or you go into a forest and and like it looks kind of like I don't know like so isolated and and twisted and and desolate um and in my head a lot of the time it's like oh that's just what Australia looks like but when you look like even if you look at earliest uh, like Australian landscape art like by the settlers and you look at like the way that the forests look it's a it's like a completely different universe because like the way that it should be when australia is like in balance or whatever is is not this desolate like sparse trees it's like it, it, there's so much local fauna and like the floor beds are usually full of native plants and and animals and you know you go into a lot of these uh, national parks now and it's a completely different thing because like even animals don't really apparently like don't even really live in um the national forest as much as they used to now they they move out to the farms because like the land is like really unbalanced and badly sort of maintained and like you know like when the the early settlers arrived they described australia looking like a giant gentleman's park and like to me it doesn't look like that at, at all now and it's like i think like uh, like fire is such like uh, like i didn't really get how important fire is like to the landscape like there's even a lot of native plants need fire to germinate their seeds like the banksia or at least one kind of banksia needs fire to to like to be born at all yeah, right. and there's a bunch of plants that operate like it's like an important part of the ecosystem um, a lot of the information I got from this was from this book called Fire Country, which I really don't have like enough time to do it proper justice. It's by uh, Victor Stephenson, and I and I really recommend it. It was I really it's one of the like the books this year that's really like uh sort of I don't know like really I've learned so much from the book, but I'll try to keep my my uh, notes on a brief because we don't have that much time. But uh, Victor Stephenson, he was raised in Karanda, uh, and he didn't have a lot of connection to his indigenous side. And in the mid nineties, he went to this little town like Laura on a fishing trip where he met, uh, Dr. George Musgrave and Dr. Tommy George. But at the time they were just Poppy and old man TG and that's what he calls them. Um, and they spent their lives kind of like, they sort of passed down to him, like uh, cultural burning and, and the history of it and how it works in, in the Awulaya country, um, in Queensland. And then he sort of went on to like, it's a, it's a really interesting story, but he basically went on to like, uh, spend his life, like the, the, uh, Victor Stephenson spent a long time, like spent his whole career, like working on workshops and making documentaries and writing books all about like cultural burning and how it works. And he got a PhD written and, um, you know, continues to spread the message of cultural burning, um, and it's like it's I don't know the the story I can't get into, but it's it's interesting, it's depressing, it's frustrating, but uh, I don't know I, I learned a lot about it. But uh, basically, the way that sort of cultural burning works, uh, sort of like pre-colonial uh, cultural burning, is um, I think the difference between like burning and the uh, like fire and the relationship we have with fire now and the way the indigenous people seem to, um, according to this book anyway. Is it like Western fire management is about fighting fire and and defeating it, um, but like indigenous burning, like you know most of the um, firefighters we have are like really hardworking, but they're not even paid, and the industries are strangled by bureaucracy and um, you know like the science involved with controlled burning is not really a match for like the holistic uh, indigenous knowledge, which is thousands of years old, and and like uh, it's not like the way the indigenous people seem to view fire is not about fear it's kind of like it's an accepted part of the equilibrium and that's like the big difference yeah cultural burning sort of like uh like the indigenous burning and it's like a holistic practice um 
the difference between that and hazard reduction is that like cultural burning is inherently ongoing and that's kind of what makes it different um there's an example in the book i mean i don't have time there's he goes through and really outlines in uh fire country how it works specifically but uh like one example is he was at a at a burn and and there was some scientists there and uh he asked them first he's like can you explain how you would burn this uh area and the scientist said something like uh, this is a dry schlerophyll forest maybe i've mispronounced that with the eucalypt and stringy bark trees and judging by the land it should be burned every seven to ten years and all the scientists kind of agreed like yeah that's how that's how it's, it's looked at and then he went on to explain over like an hour like going through every single plant and soil and how it all works with each other to kind of explain like it's not just as easy as that it's really complicated and um to keep the land healthy and to prevent bushfires you need to like uh like cater to every aspect of the particular environment and not just a, a very generalized look at what trees there are um and it kind of requires an inherent like ongoing relationship with the land uh like indigenous people used like uh, their knowledge of like the native environment which is a lot of it's been proven by science a lot later but they have like a series of markers that they would use to like know when the uh the land needs to be burned and then they would know how to burn it based on like a, a billion different factors um but like for example if if you were in um if you were in a boxwood forest you'd probably burn kind of at the start of the year and you would wait to see like uh, the bloodwood trees flower blooming and then you'd know oh it's time to to burn but then there's a, a a number of like uh factors that could influence the way you burn it like the color of the dirt what kind of trees where the trees are natural barriers like what kind of smoke to send the animals and the whole process is kind of to keep the canopies alive so that um the the forest can continue and uh in comparison when he did his first like uh controlled burn uh there's some government people picked him up and were like do you want to do one they just drove out to a forest and he sat in the back of a ute with a drip torch and a flamethrower and just sort of set fire to the the area you know and that's kind of like that's kind of the inherent difference between the two methods of, of burning yeah one's a bit more kind of observational and requires a lot more time. exactly yeah, and i think like uh you know like he works he worked for some time uh like with parks australia and with parks uh, parks australia and other like environmental organizations for a long time and he goes into in the book uh, a lot about like the bureaucracy and the red tape that prevents like uh, and actively discourages lots of well-meaning people from doing their job properly. You know, he talks about like a lot of the bosses who like you know determine what time the burning is don't even go to see the burns. Like they're they're in office, you know, and they don't know what happens on the burn. They don't know what the result is afterwards. And and it's not because it's not done in a sustainable way. It's not actually helping the forest recover, which means. Not just that, like, we won't have, you know, a, a, a nature imbalance. It's also really bad for fire prevention. But, like, there's things like, uh, like, many government funding burning programs, like, get a certain date. Uh, and if they haven't burnt by then, they don't get the next round of funding. So whether or not it's a good time to burn, they just go, oh, we got to burn now because we want to get the funding. You know, so they, they just do it. And it's kind of irresponsible. Um, according to him, anyway. I mean, I only, like, I'm quite a little biased because I only read his... Uh, side on it um but i would be more inclined to believe his side than some white people coming in and being like no we know this land better than an indigenous person so i think yeah and and exactly and there was like a, there was like a, a, there's a, you know countless stories within the book of like how 
you know, like um, he would he would that exact situation would happen when he'd be on a burn and someone would be there, be like, you can't tell me about how to burn this land, and then you know he'd show them. And, um, you know, you return to the land like soon after and, and, you know, all this native grass and trees would be growing and, <clears throat> um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't have time to explain all of how it works and, and the history of it, but yeah, read the book. It's called Fire Country by Victor Stephenson. I, I think it's really interesting, yeah, for but, sure. uh, basically, basically we've kind of spent a long time neglecting the land and like you know, cutting down like, uh, thousands of like, uh, cutting down like thousand year old trees. And that's a big issue. And, and there's a bunch of stuff that we've done that kind of brings us towards 2020. Like from like, it's in, like reading just the one book, it's so complex. And like, there's so many examples of stuff like that and how it works and different ways of burning and like different, uh, you know, soils require different management. And like, it, it just, you know, shows me like how complex these things are and, and like, you know, it it kind of, even though I don't really know, uh, like, it, you know, it can't be done by someone who just has a nine to five job and comes home and, and watches the footy. I think that's like a direct quote from the book. Um, and, and a lot of times it is, and there's, and there's a lot of people that are willing to kind of like, you know, indigenous people that want to have a connection with their land that are prevented from doing it. Um, and it, and, and you know, like, uh, there's no reason to like because people are wary of fire, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that that that's what I got from this book anyway. Um, then uh, so coming to two twenty to two twenty, coming to like two thousand and nineteen, <laughs> coming to like the two thousand and nineteen twenty uh fire season. So the like it, I always thought it was just global warming equals the fires, but actually it's kind of like global warming created the uh, like a uh, we created the environment through colonization, and then global warming was kind of like the spark. Um, there's a like there was a fifty page summary of how global warming and like I'm going from the you know premise that climate change is real. Like if you disagree with that, I don't, I don't really know what to say. That's you know I think what we all believe <laughs> yeah <laughs> definitely so the like the world weather association uh wrote this like 50 page very scientific report uh i just read the summary i tried to read the report i was like i can't <laughs> understand what's going on but it's this kind of like it's a fire weather index and it's like a, a map of extreme weathers in the areas of intense bushfire yeah um, and, and it's I, I was reading about that too. Like I kind of, ah, yeah. yeah, it was super interesting. Didn't really understand the science behind it, but in the article that I wrote, the way yeah, they summarized yeah. it, I was like, oh, yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. It kind of, it seems sort of like they sort of like make an index of the different factors that could like, uh, like encourage a bushfire. From what I can gather from how, like the overview uh, is that, like it kind of uses a series of of factors. Yeah, I, I mean, kind of having a real vague understanding of how the index works. What I did get was like uh, the the likelihood of extreme bushfires has increased by thirty percent since nineteen hundred uh, as a result of climate change. Um, extreme heat is a factor, especially in two thousand and nineteen. There was extreme heat. Heat waves in uh, two thousand and nineteen and twenty, uh, like would be one to two degrees cooler at the beginning of the 20th century. And so I think this is the kind of, this is the difference is like, we may have had a heat wave, but because of global warming, now the heat waves are hotter, if that makes sense. So even if there was an extreme heat wave of that level, it would be one to two degrees cooler. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's no, there's no parallel for how dry the land was ever compared to 2019. 
And um, something about it, like there was a record excursion of the Indian Ocean dip hole, which is kind of like our El Nino phenomenon. Yeah, I, don't I really... came into that in in some of my research uh, yeah. as a way of kind of like um, uh, discarding the the uh, climate change kind of. Mm. Part yeah, of it, yeah, right. this is a natural thing that's going to happen anyway. Because I've been doing, because there's a La Nina, there's a La Nina happening right now in the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. Um. And so I was like just researching by myself like a few weeks ago when this was announced. And so because Australia is situated where it is, we are this the people that are going to get climate change the first. And so the fact yeah, that we're right. having a La Nina and we had an El Nino last year is like a direct result of climate change. Like the fact that they're so close right, together. Right. Right. And the way that um. El Nino affects the heat and La Nina affects the cold. And yeah, ba- uh, it's hard to explain, but basically El Nino causes bushfires. La Nina causes yeah, right. like precipitation it- and like growth. And then, then paired with El Nino, it's a bad mix, basically. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, well, prove it, prove it, bro. Prove it. <laughs> That's a little spoilers for for Zeb's research. <laughs> yep. Prove it, bro. <laughs> so I, I'll give a kind of ver- as brief as I can with like, obviously I don't have time to do a respectful in-depth overview of the, the bushfires, um, but, I'll, uh, but I've tried to do my best to kind of condense it without being, I don't know, like uh, cutting through people's traumatic, uh, like, you know, people lost so much. Um, but starting in September, in a range of areas, more than 100 fires burned across New South Wales, uh, also in eastern and northeast Victoria. Large areas of forest burned out of control for four weeks, taking lives and threatening towns. Fires also struck Adelaide Hills and Kangaroo Island in South Australia and also parts of the ACT. Queensland, WA and Tads were also mildly effective. Um, in November, the fires encroached on Sydney's outer border, uh, causing a declaration of catastrophic fire danger. Uh, which brought uh, like an extra push for like uh, crisis attention, which I think there was a lot of backlash from the farmers being like, oh yeah, well now it's fucking with the cities. Of course it's like, I mean, it was obviously already catastrophic, but that really like pushed it to the next like stage of um, response. Uh, and uh, yeah, like I'm not, I, I'll leave uh, Scott Morrison to you guys. Cause I think you'll probably touch on him, but yeah, I mean, he's, he was on holidays a lot of the time and there was a lot of backlash about the way he held it. It was a little like, um, I don't know, not very sympathetic. His thoughts and prayers, mine. Yeah, exactly. Um, the flames, like, it's some of them, like, I just forgot, like, watching this footage again of, like, the firefighters and what they were going through, it's like, there's flames that are, like, hundreds of meters high. Uh, you, you know, there's all these, like, charred remains of towns. I saw so many pictures like that and all the dead animals. There were so many stories of, like, you know, whole fields of animals just being burnt to crisps and, like, all of, like, the first-hand accounts, I've got sources for them. Uh, some really good ones the ABC did and like everyone kind of says the same stuff just like oh it's like it's like going into hell and I thought I was gonna die and the firefighters who were mostly unpaid were there every day and um the you know like uh, it was just like uh, it's just really like it was so it was so awful like and you watch that footage again you remember um one thing that like stood out at the time I remember being reported on a lot was on New Year's Eve uh, a couple of towns, one of them was Malakuta, was like completely destroyed and, and there was all the, those pictures of like those horrible images of people sheltering by the sea to stay safe on New Year's Eve and with the red background, like everything was just completely red. Um, in that one night on New Year's Eve, I mean, maybe there's more from from my brief research I could see already. Sarsfield, Kuyong, uh my pronunciations are wrong, sorry. Uh, 
Kojiwa, Bateman's Bay, Conjola Park, Mogo. That was all in just one night. Um, I, I got a quote from The Verge about how, like, the cities were affected by the smoke. Um, this is a direct, like, quote from that. Uh, the smoke became another disaster. On January 1st, Australia's capital recorded the worst pollution it's ever seen, with air quality index 23 times higher than what is considered hazardous. Smoke in the city crept into birthing rooms, stopped MRI machines from working, and triggered respiratory distress, and, and one elderly woman just died as soon as she stepped off a plane. Uh, the whole time, yeah, Scott Morrison's on holidays. Um, by January, uh, 18.6 million hectares, which is kind of like, uh, by comparison, the size of like almost the entire UK, was burned across all of Australia. The University of Sydney estimated 480 million uh, animals like died, uh, and entire species of plants, and now a lot of animals are endangered. There was like almost two and a half thousand homes just in New South Wales. 33 people died and uh, 337 million tons of CO2 were released. Um, and yeah, I mean, the fires went on till early May. They kind of petered out. But, you know, the, I mean, like, there's no doubt. Like, to anyone who wasn't in Australia at the time, it's like, we've never, you know, I hear that a bit in Europe, like, oh, well, you know, there's catastrophic bushfires every year. But it's like, this is like, there's nothing, none of like the, the recent bushfires around the world have come close to how catastrophic this bushfire was and how horrible it was. And yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, yeah, it's, it's weird to look back at this stuff and just see how fucked up it was. And, and, and indigenous communities were some of the worst affected areas, you mm. know, as well, which is just, it's just all terrible. Like, yeah, it's so, yeah, God, it's just so overwhelming to like read and see the statistics and you're just like, what the hell? Like, anyways. yeah, exactly. So that's kind of, that's uh the shortest like history of of bushfires in australia I, I kind of could put together i am interested to see because the right wing are you know i'm i'm very skeptical of obviously and i'm kind of interested to know like what what are the points and what does it have to do with burning and and yeah i'm, I'm interested um well the the two the two main kind of theories that I could find, which I should probably say straight off the top, that it was actually quite hard to find uh, any real media outlets talking about it, any of the the more right, like, anti-green right, sort of okay. things. So I ended up, like, delving a lot into Twitter. Um, that was, like, the main place that I found a lot of shit. The, yeah, but, like, so the two points that uh, most people were talking about was, um, like, uh, the... Green's kind of like hazard reduction policies made it extremely hard for um for like yeah the the Green's hazard reduction plans mean that uh, people are unable to clear up like dry vegetation like all of that fire fuel as well as um putting fire breaks into like would be falling into disrepair and making it really like harder to fight the fires once they began. Do you know what I find always so interesting is is like uh, when they talk about the Greens. But the but the Greens are responsible for dictating they, yeah, they are not fire power. Yeah, they, they're not in power. They have no say. Yeah. <laughs> like what? I... But 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 I do think what's weird is if I've if I've understood hazard reduction, burning, and and what the difference is. Like I I did read some stuff like that in the book, and maybe I've just misunderstood it. But like in the book I read, there was a, a lot of talk about how like um, 
you know, like the, the government, there's a lot of national parks where they do prevent it, but I don't know if it's necessarily the same lens that, you know, the right are looking through. In hazard reduction, hazard reduction, like, includes a lot of other kind of behavior as well in terms of, like, adhering to total fire ban and, like, having, like, fire emergency plans for, like, people in these areas. There's, like, a whole other yeah. section that's not just, like, backburning and tr- control burn-offs that I think, from my idea, the right wing are probably being, like... It's everything, you know? Yeah, right. Okay. It's like, I'm not allowed to have a campfire or something. But then I also remember there was a lot of discussion at the time about people go, which I tried to talk about the last one and already lost the the argument, but all the hipsters like us were going, um, it's not back burning. Okay. It's hazard reduction burning. So it's the first (laughs) thing you've got wrong. I remember that being billied around a lot, which is, you know, obviously true. Yeah. 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 The first official talk of, um of hazard reduction, like the Greens being responsible for poor hazard reduction policy was that, um, was from, uh, Sky News interview with Barnaby Joyce, who is like the ex deputy PM. Yeah. Yeah. Colorful uh, character. Yeah. And so he's a, he's a real country dude. He's the member for, um, New England, which was like affected in the, in the fires. And, um, he jumped on Sky News and said that essentially that, um, yeah, the the Greens like unchecked conservation measures meant that they would rather save animal habitats than creating like the safest kind of uh uh it, like conditions for a fire outbreak. And then saying, but mm. those, you know, like those animal habitats were going to burn anyway. I think that a lot of the the uh like that side of the debate, the kind of anti-Greens thing was just a way of kind of uh you know, like right-winger conservative like political mem- like Assi- assigning some blame yeah. yeah yeah just using it as like like weaponizing it for the sake of of like you know going against like the greens mm. yeah so in that interview he pretty quickly starts just talking about like um the greens like anti-coal policies and how it would do how like that would not change the bushfires at all which i mean is in that moment i think is quite irrelevant for sure yeah, yeah right. you don't need to bring up coal when we're talking about bushfires <laughs> Yeah. They There's both burn. Like, I get disaster. That. <laughs> like, do you think? Do you do you feel like that any part of this is kind of also to distract from like the anti-Scotty stuff that was happening at the time? Yeah. Well, I like doing the like like reading what I was reading. There was no mention of Scott Morrison at any point. You know, right, like, there right, was yeah, it was yeah. it was all anti-green uh, and yeah, anti kind of climate change uh, like believers or activists. Sure. Mm. The other, the other main theory that I found was, um, was that arson was the arson thing. Like there was a, there was an. Yeah, I'm interested that, in this. Yeah, there was an article written by the Australian, which I couldn't read because it was behind a paywall, and I didn't want to. I couldn't afford to. Oh, yeah. I didn't want to give any money. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, uh, that was they, they broke the the story that there was. I think it was 183 people had been arrested for uh, for arson, like around the bushfires, and so. If you go onto Twitter and look up, um, what is it, uh, hashtag arson emergency, you'll find like the the kind of like highly conspiratorial side of the of the whole like bushfire debate. Oh, really? Is it, I I thought it was more uh, like it's just damn damn kids starting fires because I think a lot of fires are actually you know started by people, but I don't know if it's necessarily arson. But I, I know there was some arson cases for sure. I'll get into that later. Yeah, okay, well, right. yeah, I'm sure that there was, but it it is hard to kind of like that's I guess that's the thing with all of this shit. It's it's it kind of takes away from 
the relevance of like when it actually does happen, it becomes a lot weaker. Yeah, sure. What's the what's the conspiracy? What what is it? What's the story here? I'm so interested. Oh uh, well, I mean, I'm saying conspiracy. It's probably like that is the conspiracy essentially that there's nothing. It has nothing to do with climate change, and that it's that it's only due to arson, and completely ignores the fact that even if it was arson, the bushfires have gotten really really bad and and that might have yeah, something sure. to do with climate change. But do they have like a like a, a narrative behind like why people would want to start the bushfires? Like was there anything? Like I that? remember this I remember this whole thing that there was like oh isn't it convenient where the bushfires uh were active because now the land's cleared for this like interstate railway project that like the rights been blocking for years and years and like kind of convenient that like all that land is free now there was something like that i remember floating yeah around, like, I, Facebook. yeah i do remember that but I, I i couldn't insane. find any of those tweets like this time around but i do remember seeing that stuff on facebook when it was when yeah, the, when yeah. It was going on. maybe they were yeah. deleted yeah maybe but uh i i think that i'm pretty sure i don't know i don't know this for like definitely but i think that the kind of like um interstate railway thing is the thing that like governments of the libs and labor have both kind of put forward throughout the years and it's just like it's never going to work it's too it's hard too, to do. it's too far too much distance and, and too unnecessary yeah 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 even though it would like maybe cut down on some co2 I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, it's not a bad sure. idea, but like, I, I just don't think that it's, it's not really something that's at the forefront of anyone in power's mind. So when I was looking into the, um, the, the whole arson emergency thing, I found an article on the Guardian talking about um, how a lot of the arson emergency hashtag was being, um, I guess this is actually quite conspiratorial, was like a lot of the, that, that hashtag was propagated by bots. Like all of these fake Twitter accounts were, oh, really? were tweeting all of this stuff, which I, I mean, I'm not really sure what the what the advantage is of doing that. I'm going to discuss that later too. <laughs> um, Interesting. And like, who would be behind it? I guess it just it seems very it seems a bit more. I don't know what the word is like. Um, a bit more conniving than a lot of Australian politics tends to be. You know, <laughs> that seems like something that might happen yeah, in America yeah, yeah. and it would be Russia to you know something like that, but. Yeah. You really see when, like, Australian politics, when I, when I moved over here and, you know, there's so many countries and people talk about different politics all the time. Australian politics is quite simple, usually, like, just button heads. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah. I agree. Yeah. I don't know. It was quite funny. Like, I think one of the, after I saw the bot thing, uh, the bot article, I, the first uh, user I came across on Twitter with the, uh, the Arsenal Emergency hashtag was named a... Daryl underscore Kerrigan three, which made me oh, think yeah. of bot. But I like the idea that Daryl from the castle is also some. Sort yeah, of yeah, he's also managing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, so I don't know. To me, I think that like most of what was going on was being, yeah, it was all kind of coming from or being shared through Facebook and Twitter. I would say probably mostly Facebook, where I think that it works because people who aren't necessarily that interested in kind of delving much further than what they read on their newsfeed, it's very easy to convince those people. But then if you actually Google any of the kind of theories put forth on Twitter and Facebook, almost everything that you'll find is like debunking and fact-checking of like those those claims. Yeah, right, right, yeah, right. That's, that's what I found hardly surprising. Sure. Yeah, yeah, but I thought it was it, it was interesting and kind of scary to see how much of that we saw 
on Facebook, but then how easy it was to <laughs> to debunk it all. Yeah. And the fact that there was that many people who weren't doing that at all. I can also imagine that like, I'm sure that there's some... There, like, I, re- I remember like there was a divide between people from the country who are actively affected and, and continuing to be affected because the land's still fucked up, tourism is fucked. And um and and so much of the media attention was turned onto like the, you know the cities and and like um like I remember going to like a march or whatever and there was a bunch of people from the country being like just come down and, and help with the fire so I know that there's a lot of people that are really angry um and obviously when you're looking for a reason for like why did the fires happen and there's someone you can point the finger at if maybe it feels a lot better you know yeah well I think so and, and also maybe uh, that's a really Maybe that that's my spurious opinion. So if I've if I've got that wrong or I'm painting the wrong picture, then sorry. No, well I think that like and this is this is very much just my opinion, but I think that what happens is like and I think you can see the same thing happening with COVID where say like that uh that Australian article was retweeted by Alex Jones and there was an InfoWars article about that which I yeah. didn't bother reading. And then uh Avi Yemeni as well, who's a pretty obnoxious figure in Australian right-wing, like, kind of fringe commentary. And I think that, like, people can... I think that these guys use it in that sort of grifty way where you can appeal to someone's kind of immediate painful situation and then use, like, and, and then gain an audience with them by pointing fingers and then use yeah. that audience to then push your shitty f- politics. So, yeah, I think, like, if you find someone who's, like really upset and really hurt by something they look they need someone to be upset about it like they and then you you watch a yeah, like an yeah, yeah, yeah. video about it saying oh yeah it's the greenies or something like that and offers a relatively simple and it's like an apolitical moment for you but not for the people that are you know kind of like on the other it. side of it yeah i think yeah i think sure. it's like dem- demonstrably like like this is the way that people grieve or use their anger like a lot of the time you know but i feel like this is kind of we see this in politics all the time like in every election in every kind of situation the opposition is always going to put out those ads being like are you mad about this well the coalition are going to do that and like you know it's always yeah but i think that i think that with, with, with people who are uh like who aren't actively political figures so you know like if you saw if you saw an ad from the liberals doing yeah, that yeah, you yeah. Would, i know you, what like, you mean yeah you would kind of understand the political context that you're hearing it from whereas if it's something yeah. like avi yemeni or alex jones i suppose if you don't know who alex jones is you'll just see someone who's angry on your behalf yeah and then, yeah yeah and then yeah, yeah. C- and so like because yeah if you're if you're hurt by it and you're and you're, and you're like a progressive person you see a liberal ad saying like uh, you know, it's because of the greenies. Then you're still going to be like, uh, I, I understand that's the that's the liberals who are trying to sway me. But if you don't have that context of, like, um, like yeah, understanding that it. someone's trying to score, like win win you as an audience, I think it's a bit more dangerous in that. Yeah, in that yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a manipulation of power and influence. Yeah, and it and it and it. It's. I think that's a big chunk of what brings people into really fringe ideas. Like, yeah, I've seen a heap of it with COVID where that same Arthur Yemeni guy, who's a mm. flaming fucking racist and, like, uh, convicted domestic abuser, is mm, okay. just kind of expressing people's frustrations with the lockdowns in Melbourne. And 
you get all of these people sharing his content because they agree with his stance on the lockdown, which is somewhat, you know, fair enough, but then all of a sudden they're subscribed to this evil fucking person. Yeah, and then and then it's like this like uh this little bottleneck into conspiracy theory and like Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean yeah, you could probably yeah, yeah. say the same thing. I'm sure it's it's a similar thing with QAnon where you appeal to you appeal to the rights of 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 like uh uh children being sex trafficked. And all of a sudden, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And all of a sudden, you're a tr- you're you know yeah, deeply huge Trump into supporter. like that's a rabbit lizard hole. theory it's into Trump. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. It's a for slippery sure. slope. Yeah, yeah. And I think it that's is. something that the that the right seems to be really good at doing. And I don't know if it's that the left isn't good at doing it, or it has a conscience has the conscience not to do it. Or but I think the right is able to take advantage of these opportunities. And yeah, I guess doesn't really have a conscious conscience in it. Whereas the left, I think they try to say that I'm not going to stoop to that level and then they end up losing people. But yeah, so to summarise like what I learned, uh, I guess nothing <laughs> other than like, yeah. well, you know, there was, I, I saw, you know, there's certain things like I watched an RV video saying that, um, you know, like the, the Greens had recently updated their, their website, uh, their, their page on hazard reduction. And I, I just went on the Wayback Machine mm-hmm. and, and checked it and they... It's not true. Like I think that the uh, okay. a lot of the points that those people were making are pretty unfounded and just rely on the kind of emotional, like uh, I don't know what the, the emotional appeal of like big statements. But yeah, I think that it's mostly just been used as a like as a weapon, as most things are, you know, to to kind of like push particular agendas, which I and, you know, like the left has done as well. Like of course, there's I, I mean I guess that there's blame in all different directions, but I think that uh, the the weird right-wing version is a bit, like, weaker. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I'm going to lean into that because <laughs> all of the things that I read were very much, like, it kind of just fueled, sorry, bad word intention there. Um, no. <laughs> you know, it was just basically telling me what I already knew and kind of promoted my own ideas. But I guess mm-hmm. like, um, yeah, I got a lot of... I think of it's s- good to, it's good to have, like, I think a good thing is to kind of like to back up our, our opinions with research, you know? Yeah, exactly. Which I did. Like I researched, I got a bunch of stuff from like the ABC, the Guardian, and like there was an interesting article by the New York Times, which I'll get to in a second. But I guess like firstly, I guess to combat most of what Zeb was saying in terms of the rights, arts and emergency rhetoric, um, I read this article by the ABC and they were basically just like, it was called... Um, uh, some coalition MPs say that arson is mostly to blame for the bushfire crisis. Here are the facts. So they just went into delving into like what arson actually is. And arson by definition is the deliberate fire setting resulting in criminal damage to property, including a structure, a house, a vehicle or vegetation. And so they go on to talk ah. about how it's actually like a really difficult crime to detect in any sort of fire situation because like mostly in a fire, like it burns away the evidence. And especially mm. in a bushfire, like, because it covers so much ground. And then so they were basically saying that it was hard to determine whether the bushfire season was actually caused by arson or if it was caused by, like, other human interference, like, reckless or um, accidental behaviour, like, meaning, like, butting out a cigarette or just, like, having a fire mm-hmm. in a bush on a total fire ban, you know? I think that the thing that, that's interesting about that definition is, like, if someone lights an irresponsible campfire... I guess that's arson, but the, when when people on the right talk about arson, it, it makes it seem like someone deliberately is sort of sitting down with a lighter and burning a tree, you know, because they're angry. 
Well, no, that's the thing. Like someone um, lighting a bushfire, I mean, sorry, a campfire and it getting out of control, that's not defined as arson. Like that's oh, defined okay. as accidental, like human interference, basically. Like it was oh, okay, caused right. by a human, but it wasn't by the definition arson. So that's what this article was talking about, was basically saying that like the right is trying to say that these were all deliberately lit and these were all caused by like deliberate human situations, you know. Um and so they were basically just like debunking all of that kind of stuff and saying how like the bushfires could not have been arson. They could not even have been caused by humans because of the majority of the bushfires were in like completely rural areas in like Victoria and New South Wales that were inaccessible for humans. And usually arson or like human lit fires occur close to housing areas and like communities and stuff. So the fact mm. that these bushfires were so far away from any people at the beginning like just proved that they weren't caused by people anyway, that they were mostly caused by lightning strikes in like dry thunderstorms, which were happening during the heat wave, which was right, a direct right. cause of climate change. And so there was just like, yeah, all of these um, people in this article that were just basically contradicting themselves. Like the Victoria police um, apparently had like sent out statements saying that, yes, there was like 183 people had lit fires, but that was in like – a really long period of time and it was over like two fire seasons or something like that. Mm. Um, and then they contradicted themselves then saying, this is a quote from the Victoria police spokeswoman saying, there is currently no intelligence to indicate that the fires in East Gippsland and Northeast have been caused by arson or any other suspicious behavior. So mm. it's just kind of like all these people going back and forth and not really saying the right things, especially in the Morrison government. And so, yeah, well, like, you know, they were just kind of making it very confusing. But at the end, they kind of um, uh, talked to this professor from the University of Tasmania, which they basically just said to try to criminalise the crisis as being caused by arson is completely irrational. And it underplays the facts that the reason this fire crisis is, was so dramatic was because the climate and the drought-driven event of heat waves and extreme winds caused the extremity of the fires, basically. Yeah, so, okay. Yeah, they kind of just, like, debunked the whole rights idea of, like, it's arson, like, it's all because of, like, people setting fires. Like, yeah, people can set fires, but it's not necessarily the cause of how big the fires got, you know. It was yeah, obviously sure, because sure. of the fuel and everything that you kind of stated in terms of climate change and just, you know. But then um, how I guess that was, like propagated throughout the media was like as Zeb was saying through bots which I read a really interesting article where it was by the New York Times and it was entitled how Rupert Murdoch is influencing Australia's bushfire debate um, and it's by Damien Cave and I really found this like super interesting and I was like yeah it makes so much sense and he was basically just talking about how Rupert Murdoch run newspapers throughout Australia were perpetuating this arson is the cause of the fires and then kind of like yes scapegoating oh, okay. the greenies for that because um, a lot of like, I guess this is what I got from it anyway, like a lot of independent run publications and stuff like that are usually leaning towards the left. Whereas like Murdoch run mm. newspapers are usually leaning but towards the right. Not. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, so there was kind of like a lot of stuff going on about that, but there was actually a study done by, um, doesn't say where the study was done by, but it was done into News Corp, which is the largest media company in Australia. And mm -hmm. the study found that online... Uh, owned by Murdoch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, the study found that online bots and trolls had been exaggerating the role of arson in the cause of the fires. And it showed that um, the bots had oh actually God. previously posted support for President Trump in other conservative like media outlets that were run by Murdoch as well. Um, so it's just you know the world is is more uh, simple and more depressing than you than you think, isn't it? Like oh. yeah, exactly. Yep. It's like when I was reading this, I was like, this is not a surprise, but it's also like, god damn it, <laughs> come on, guys! This is crazy, man. That's mad. It was ridiculous, and then it was basically they were just saying like that in any Murdoch owned paper or like publication, if you just search anything to do with climate change, like you just type the words climate change all these editorials and all these opinion pieces come up being like how it's all about like radical climate change protesters ruining like your Sunday afternoon and then how like it's all perpetuated by the greenies in Australia and it's just like no one is addressing climate change in any of these publications and they're all just kind of like putting it as like an um, I guess like a human issue like it's how people are reacting to this idea that's the issue and not climate change is the actual issue you know. You know, like if I've understood the premise of of the article properly, um, it's it's just you know with all this like conspiracy and and bots and and like the you know the construction of public opinion, you think you think it's something like it's a bunch of shady businessmen meeting in a in a back room and sort of trying to program minds for whatever reason, but it's actually just all interrelated to just like what's going to get clicks or something yeah. if i've understood that correctly and that's yeah. just ah it's not that the other scenario would be better but it you know things aren't as, as like conspiracy doesn't have to be so intensely complex and like uh sinister so, well i mean it is but not as complex in its like motivations as as that we think that it might be yeah no i agree it's just so ridiculous like it's all and like i guess this is with anything, but it always just comes back to money. Like, of course, these clicks are yeah. going to get, like, advertising revenue and make that Murdoch man some more money. So that was just very depressing. But then I guess I was reading and I read, like, a Guardian Autumn, a Guardian <laughs> Australian article, which talked about, yeah, your fire weather index, which I thought was really interesting, but you kind of explained it really well. But I guess, like, the only well, thing Well, if that, I explained it correctly, I don't know. The, like, you did, well... It. Because I don't really, I didn't really understand it. All I kind of, I summarized it as being like an index, which was like a way to predict the severity of fires. So by combining like wind speed, relative humidity, temperature, drought, and flammability of the fuel, which is like you know forest mm. shrubbery and that kind of stuff, and not and, petrol, and not actual petrol, not, no, <laughs> secret no, ga- no. Under, underground gasoline in the middle of the. <laughs> Eucalypt Which was forest. planted by the greenies, yeah. obviously. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, come on. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it kind of was just like talking about how there was a 30% um, increase of the severity of bushfires since the 1900s due to human-caused climate change. That's kind mm. of like all I got from it, but it, which is exactly what you said. But it was basically they had a really – um, yeah, it was just basically like the lead scientist of that index or study mm. or whatever this, her name was Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick. Um, and she just stated like, this is a direct quote from her. Australia just experienced its worst bushfire season on record, overlapping our warmest and driest year on record. We know climate change has a role in increasing temperatures, which is a c- component in bushfire weather. 
So it's basically just like, mm. look at the facts, guys. <laughs> this is yeah, science. Yeah. And there's no denying that, obviously, these bushfires got so bad because of climate change. Like, Yeah, yeah. I mean, with, without, like, without getting a degree in climate science or something, I don't really know how we could sit down and explain like the a simple like explanation of like how it works apart from like you know reading a report and talking about it but i think like i think it's important to stress that like i don't know if like if this, this podcast is not this i don't want anyone to think that this podcast is about complete objectivity it's not oh, it's no. it's like it's about exploring why we believe what we believe but you know i mean yeah, yeah. which i guess like and when i was reading all of these um articles in terms of that question, why do we believe what we believe? The reason I believe what I believe is because of the facts. It's science. Yeah, the science. <laughs> there were who told you the facts? Who paid for the facts? By <laughs> yeah, trustworthy well, exactly. Guardian Australian reporters. <laughs> Prove it. Well, I trusted Graham Redfern. He did a really good job in convincing me. <laughs> <laughs> Prove it. <laughs> <laughs> Until I shake his hand, he doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah. No, he had a lovely and little if, photo of himself. It was very cute. If I if I destroy <laughs> him with my mind and my memory, he doesn't exist. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Oh. I mean, sorry, coward. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess the one thing that did I that I that I did want to add was that the whole like. Scott Morrison is a bad guy. I think that all came from memes. Like, because every time, everything I researched, it was kind of just talking about like government representatives, like, you know, going back and forth and kind of blaming each other. But no one blamed anybody in terms of the articles and like the the written pieces that I read. I think, I think for him, it was, it was definitely about kind of, it was you know, like, it was yeah, more. It was about it was his like, response. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But, that's, but yeah, I mean, yeah, like, yeah. The, it kind of blew up through memes and through, like, you know, oh, it wasn't so much, like, reported on, yeah. But I, th- I think, I think, like, it, it, you know, like, I remember off the top of my head that, you know, obviously he was in Hawaii uh, and then when he was sort of interviewing farmers, he wasn't clear on the facts of, like, uh, how many people had died in the communities of the farmers or yeah. the bush? Maybe there were firefighters, people yeah. he was talking to, and and you know he said a lot of very insensitive things, just m- mostly due to kind of like at least like uh, something that's hard to quantify, but like kind of like his humanity was lacking at a time when when mm. I think Australia really needed him to be a, a leader, you know, in terms yeah. of, like, yeah. the yeah. way he presents yeah. himself, you know. Yeah, exactly. And that was – I watched, like, a Vice News video and they kind of interviewed, like, very, very right-wing people that were like, no, 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 he did a good job. And then I watched mm. another video where the people were like, uh, no, fuck him, he was terrible and so insensitive. So I guess it was yeah. just kind of – because these were both people who had experienced – the bushfires and like lost their homes and stuff and it was very interesting to see yeah exactly i mean it's hard to it's hard to quantify something like that so yeah. i think like for me kind of what changed is like firstly just i, I like i just, it was more it was less like what did i learn i mean i learned like in terms of the bushfires it was more like what had i forgotten about how terrible it was but then i learned so so much about cultural burning which is something that i really want to learn more about because I don't know anything about it still after reading one book. And and, I, and it's really, really interesting. I can't recommend that book enough. I'm kind of swooning about it. But, like, I really do think it's a really important book because I think there is, like, a for the future, there's, there's like, a, a sort of 
cut-out path that we can follow that will really help our fire management, um, according to this book. But yeah, that's my that's my take on it. And I think like it's interesting. I mean, uh, like I mean, th- th- this is through the premise of this book, but. You know, like most sort of like indigenous people to their land have a really strong relationship with how uh, every element of that land works. But like if you go back, it's like, you know, like coming from a, a like a, a, you know, like a British English or, or whatever, you know, like Central European background. And you think like, oh, I never had ancestors that have like a strong connection to the to the land. But it's like, well, you know, like... Uh, people that are native to their own environment do and did it's when people are displaced that they don't you know and and like uh there's no inherent like connection that you know we as as white people have to this land or something and, and it's a hard thing to teach especially if you're actively not listening and yeah exactly repressing it, you know? like you have to be open well that is with anything as well like you have to be open to accept that you're wrong like that you don't have the tools yeah, yeah. and you don't know what you're doing yeah, and and in the mi- in the micro in the macro, it's in our best interest because we'll all die. But in the micro, relative micro, it's not in our best interest because we well, you know, what are people going to do? Like, uh, move somewhere else and shut down the cities and you know decolonize. Yeah. I mean, we should do it, <laughs> yeah. but it's a hard thing to kind of manage. But I think there is a, a balance that we can meet between Western science and like indigenous practice somehow. Uh, yeah, definitely. You know, but- I think, yeah, again, it just needs people to be – the people in power need to be open to that and are going to be willing to listen mm. and actually do something about it, you know. Hi, okay, thanks. Uh, <laughs> okay, uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Again, you can find us on Coward Space slash Opheads, no hyphen between the op and the heads, or on Instagram at Opheads Podcast. Um, if you want to follow any of my updates, you can follow me at Coward underscore space on Instagram. Um where you can find my writing and stuff. And you can find any of the work that I'm doing with POC magazine um, online at pocmag.com or on Instagram at pocmag, which is POC, which is spelled P-O-C-C, by the way, just in case. Yes. And you can find me nowhere, still. Nowhere at all. You can find him in Tasmania. The mysterious yep. man. We need to create, we, you know binoculars. what we should do? We should... And we mm. maybe have said this last week, but we should create like a really mysterious air about Zeb. Like no one understands who he is, what he does. Or like he's just this I don't think we need to create one. I think there already, is, there already is one. He's already an international man. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. There's no that's need. That's true. That's true. Um, and, and as ever, if you need to, if, uh, uh, as ever, if, if we've said something, um, if we've said something that's wrong or there's there's something that like you felt when you listened to this um please like let us know we're always open to like criticism and and we want to try and get better so if we've said something that like stands out as as grossly inaccurate to you please please like always message us okay guys see you later bye Bye, guys see ya um quickly there'd be plenty of newspapers with plenty of different people controlling them so that there's a variety of viewpoints, but there's a choice for the public. Uh, no, 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 not, 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 not,